Father, we do ask that as we study your word that you would just bless this time as, Lord, uh, we're in the uh, seeing what's going to take place uh, in the middle of the tribulation period. And I know that uh, for some, this may be new. This may be heavy. This may be uh, even difficult to, to hear. But these things are written for our benefit because all scripture is profitable from Genesis through Revelation. And Lord, uh, as we go through this, that we understand um, some things that are going to really be helpful for us today. And so I pray that we would be attentive uh, as we go through this chapter, that, Lord, that uh, we would take your word and not only looking at the implication, but there's application for us to be made tonight. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So presently, chronologically, we're halfway through the book of Revelation. And also, as we are in chapter 12, chapters 11, 12, and 13 are telling us of different events and things that are taking place at the halfway mark of the tribulation period. And as most of us know, that uh, the tribulation period is a seven-year period, formerly known as Daniel's 70th week. And, and it's a seven-year period right prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ. It begins with this one that we're going to see, we, we've already talked about him that takes center stage in the tribulation period. He is called the Antichrist. When we get into chapter 13, we're going to see about him uh, specifically what is told to us about him. And then also we know that he's going to have a sidekick along with him who's called the false prophet. And, and something very significant happens in the middle of the tribulation period because as we saw last week in chapter 11, we saw the temple in its place. We talked about how the Antichrist, as he comes on the scene, the tribulation period or Daniel's 70th week, begins with the Antichrist riding on a white horse, the first seal that is opened up in chapter 6. Chapter 6 through 19 describe to us in details what is taking place in the tribulation period. So it begins with the Antichrist coming on the scene. He's riding a white horse. He's conquering on the conquer. He has a bow, but not an arrow. So he comes on the scene seemingly as a peacemaker. And we know that the Antichrist is going to be a world leader that will seem to have the answers to the world problems. The world's going to turn to him. And we know that Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, and as I've said to you, that those last four verses of Daniel chapter 9 are very important for us to understand to get the outline and the time frame of what's going to take place in the tribulation period. And so it begins as Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, confirming what the book of Revelation tells us in Revelation 6, that it begins with this Antichrist that's going to confirm a covenant with Israel for seven years. The 70th week of Daniel, there's going to be a focus on the nation of Israel. And in any of you that are students of end time prophecy, you know and you've heard that Israel is really the epicenter of end time prophecy. When Israel Israel became a nation once again in 1948. That started the end time clock. And we know that Jesus would speak about that. The New Testament writers spoke about that. And we can say that we are definitely in the last days because Israel is back in their original homeland after being, you know, uh, out, you know, out of their homeland and being in captivity and dispersed for 2,000 years, they came back 1948. 
They became a nation once again. The fig tree budded. And we know that Jesus said, when you see the fig tree bud, know that my coming is very near. And so Israel is the focal point of end time prophecy and Jerusalem because many of the events that we are reading about are not going to take place if Israel isn't a nation. The temple being in Jerusalem, uh, we're going to read tonight, uh, the Antichrist going after Israel, all kinds of things that need to happen and they cannot happen prophetically until Israel was back in the land which has happened. So we see these things that, that are told to us, very uh, important for us to understand, and the Antichrist seemingly will solve the problems, what it seems like, with this covenant that he makes with Israel for a week, for a seven-year period. And it will enable the Jews to rebuild their temple. There's no temple that's in Jerusalem today, but they're making preparations for that. And we know that uh, in the middle of the tribulation period, the tribulation period divided up into two portions, uh, uh, the you know first three and a half years we have looked at, and then in the middle, after the three and a half year mark, there's what is taking place that we're reading about in chapters 11, 12, and 13. And what happens is, as we saw at the temple, the two witnesses that were there, they were witnessing in Jerusalem. They had this powerful ministry as, you know, they uh, caused the heavens to shut uh, to where no rain would fall in the days of the prophecy. They had the power to turn water into uh, blood, uh, to strike the earth, earth with all kinds of plagues. And so that was their witness. That's what they're doing in the first half of the tribulation period. And as all of a sudden, after 1260 days, they were killed as the uh, Satan, it says, comes and he kills them. And then we see at that time what happens is the Antichrist goes into that rebuilt temple. Daniel speaks of it and points to it. Paul speaks about it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. He says that this Antichrist, this man of sin, is going to sit as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And what he's going to do is he's going to go into that temple, and he's going to desecrate that temple. He's going to set up an image of himself, and he's going to proclaim himself as God. And the thing to understand is what we're going to see is Satan is mentioned here in chapter 12. In chapter 13, the Antichrist, who's directly influenced and under the power of Satan, in chapter 13, and then the false prophet. So you have this false trinity, uh, this evil trinity that is spoken of here in the book of Revelation. And so the Antichrist is going to claim himself as God to be worshipped. He's going to command the world to worship him. And that's where we're going to pick it up here in chapter 12. As the, the Jews are going to say, no, we will not worship you. We're not going to worship your image. And he's going to persecute the Jews very heavily at that time. So these are all things that we're going to read about as we go through uh, this section. And at that time that he does that, it is called what Jesus would say and what Daniel points out to us in Daniel chapter 9, the abomination of desolation. Jesus said, when that happens, there's going to be great tribulation in Matthew chapter 24. So going through chapter 12 here, uh, we know that there's a lot of personalities. There's a woman, there's a dragon, there's a male child, there's Michael, and we need to study them clearly so we know what this chapter is telling us. As we go through chapter 12, we have a great sign 
verse 1. There's a great dragon, verse 3. There's great wrath in verse 12. And there's a great ego in verse 14. But one of the things that we are going to learn is that we're going to have a great answer that's given to you and to me how we can overcome the enemy when he comes against us, how we overcome him when he accuses us. And, and so this is going to be very helpful and beneficial to us. Also, as we go through this chapter, listen, we need to understand why there is anti-Semitism that is in the world today. It is growing in the world today. It is growing rapidly in Europe. It is growing even in the United States. Even within our government, there are those that are, are in Washington. They're anti-Semitic. And it's even growing in the church. And we need to understand there is a spiritual dimension to it. And the real reason for it is because Satan is going to come against Israel. And that's what we're going to talk about because uh, he always has. So let's begin to look at chapter 12 as we get understanding in that. As we read now, great sign, verse 1, appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a garland of 12 stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. So people who... who uh, say that, well, you can't study the book of Revelation or those who say we, we won't go through the book of Revelation, pastors that say they won't teach it, they will use the excuse because you can't understand it. Here it's talking about a woman and it's talking about, you know, sun and moon and uh, this child and a dragon and all of this. And as we go through the book of Revelation, as I said when we started this study in this book, that there are over 350 references of the Old Testament that are given here in the book of Revelation. And if you're a student and you understand the Old Testament and listen, just a little side note very quickly because I don't want to get on a soapbox. But here's the thing. You're going to hear more in the church that those who say the Old Testament isn't important to study. We need to, again, remember what we're told in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, that all Scripture is profitable for doctrine, for correction, for reproof, for instruction in, in righteousness. Not just the New Testament, but all of it, from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21. Are you with me on that? And that's why we study the whole counsel of God's word here at Calvary Chapel. And, I, you know, there are those who will come along and say the Old Testament is not important to study or only sections of it. Listen, it is very important. And for us to understand the book of Revelation more clearly and understand the New Testament, we've got to have a good understanding of the Old Testament. So all these references to, of the Old Testament that are here in this book, and as you know the Old Testament, as you read these things, you begin to understand. You can understand as you let Scripture interprets Scripture what has taken place here. Because the first question is, who is this woman that we see? And in verse 5, we're told, just kind of skipping ahead, she bore a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. So that gives us some, some real hints of who this woman is. Now, there is a huge chunk of Christianity that will read uh, verse 5, and they will say, well, obviously it's the Virgin Mary. Matter of fact, it is common in Roman Catholic art to represent Mary as standing on a crescent moon with 12 stars around her head. So is this the Virgin Mary? No. 
Because what we read in verse 6 here is the woman, as she gives birth to the child, is going to flee to the wilderness for 1,260 days. Did Mary flee to the wilderness 1,260 days after the birth of Jesus? No, that didn't happen. Some see this woman as the church, actually, particularly those who of, of replacement theology, you know, that the church replaces Israel. Uh, I've heard those kind of comments. And, and it's obvious that this male child born by the woman, born of the woman, is Jesus, right? He's the one that's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And we get that from Psalm chapter 2. It's a messianic psalm. And the church didn't bring forth Jesus. Jesus gives birth to the church. He's the foundation of the church. He's the cornerstone of the church. There are those that I even heard, there was somebody that came when I taught on this years ago that wanted to argue with me because he had the teaching of somebody, you know, at a church here in town that the woman uh, was the United States. And the reason that he said that was because we're the only nation that's been to the moon. So that was his interpretation, and that was his reasoning. So, you know, very patiently, I just talked with them and said, listen, that's very bad, very bad Bible interpretation and stuff. Plus, you know, the United States didn't give birth to Jesus. So we know that this is, you know, this woman, as we really look, again, Scripture interpreting Scripture, if you're a student of the Old Testament, you would immediately equate the woman to Israel. According to Joseph's dream in Genesis chapter 37, Joseph, one of the sons of Jacob, keep in mind this, that Jacob had 12 sons. Those are the patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel. His favorite son was Joseph. And Joseph has these two dreams. And in one of the dreams, he, he dreams of these sheaves of, of wheat, that, uh, 11 of them, that bow down to him. And, and then he has another dream of the sun that, that represents Jacob, the moon that represents Joseph's uh, mother, Rachel. And the 11 stars are the sons of Israel. And Joseph had a dream. First, you know, he dreamt that, uh, as I said, that his brothers are binding sheaves in the field. And he said, my sheaf arose and stood upright and your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers were very irritated by that. He had another dream. This time the sun, the moon, the 11 stars bowed down to me, he told his father and his brothers. And his father knew what that meant. And shall you, you know, your mother and I uh, and your 11 brothers indeed bow down to you? Is that what you're saying? So his brothers got very mad and threw him in the pit. You know the story. Sold him off to Egypt into slavery. Joseph went through, you know, those years of being in prison. He becomes the prime minister uh, as he interprets a dream for Pharaoh. So immediately, being familiar with that story in Genesis, you know that the woman here given birth to the male child is Israel. The male child being Jesus, the Messiah. Remember that the church 
we are called the bride of Christ. And we see that in Revelation chapter 19. So it's not difficult to really sort this through and to understand what is being told to us. And we read, let me read it again in verse 2. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And we know that a woman that gives birth to a child that is hard to labor uh, and uh, the pain that comes with it, the difficulty that comes with it. And here this is speaking of how Israel in its history has gone through very difficult times. Uh, even at the time that Jesus was born, that they were under the rule of Rome. Uh, and it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. So all the world shall register for new taxes. And we know the Christmas story of Luke chapter 2. And you see Caesar Augustus he made the decree that we're going to have a new census and everybody's got to go back to their place of ancestry to register for the new taxes and to take the census. But you see, the Lord was in control. But Rome was in power. No one dared protest against Rome. People were fearful of Rome. And if you were a criminal and the worst of the crimes, that you would get flogged by Rome or you were crucified. We know that during this time that Herod the Great was ruling over Judea and he was a terrible man. And he's the one that, that made the decree that have all the male children two years and under killed in Bethlehem uh, after the birth of Jesus. You even had the religious leaders who were putting heavy burdens on the people. It was very difficult. But she gives birth to the child in the fullness of time as Galatians chapter 4 tells us. That Jesus was born as promised all the way from Genesis chapter 3. And we continue here in chapter 12 of Revelation in verse 3. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. So the word dragon appears 13 times in the book of Revelation, 11 times in this chapter. So as we continue reading here, we know that the red fiery dragon, we are going to be told in a chapter, is Satan, the serpent of old. And we are going to see that he's going to be cast out of heaven in just a little bit. But it's symbolic, Satan called the dragon, because it represents his nature, his character, his cruelty. You think of a dragon, fierce power and full of evil and, and killing instinct. He has great power. He has seven heads, we were told, and ten horns. And again, if you are a student of the Old Testament, you would think back to the book of Daniel. You would think back to Daniel chapter 7 particularly, and you would also think of Daniel chapter 2. Because in those two chapters, first of all, Daniel chapter 2, which is called the foundation of Bible prophecy, that we see that uh, it is Daniel that would tell Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He, he had a dream that uh, worried him, and he was up at night. He asked his you know, wise men, tell me the dream, the interpretation of the dream. They he couldn't do that. So Daniel prays and he goes to Nebuchadnezzar and he says, I'll tell you the dream and the interpretation of the dream. And in that dream, you saw an image made of different metals. And the head of gold is you, Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian empire. And Daniel begins to tell of these Gentiles empires from the time of Babylon. And Babylon, of course, took Daniel off into captivity and the choice man of Judah in 605 BC. And, and Babylon would be replaced and defeated by the Medo-Persian Empire. That is the chest and arms of silver. 
Uh, you're going to go away, you know, uh, your empire be replaced by the Medo-Persian Empire, which is going to be replaced by the Grecian Empire, Alexander the Great, that's the belly and thighs of brass. And then there was the legs of iron that represented the Roman Empire. And then there was the feet. It had iron mingled with clay and the ten toes. And Daniel said something very important in Daniel chapter 2. He said, in the days that this rock's going to come and hit the image and the image is going to crumble is speaking of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God that's going to last forever. Man's kingdoms are going to come to an end. But in those days, there's going to be the 10 kings that are represented by the 10 toes. In chapter 7 of Daniel, Daniel has a dream of four beasts that represent those same four empires. And the fourth beast, which, you know, represents Rome, it was terrible and it was dreadful and it had ten horns. And there was a little horn that came up among the ten horns. And again, it was told to us that those ten horns represent ten kings. So suffice it to say, you know, without going through a lengthy Bible study in that, that there's going to be this revived Roman Empire in the last days represented by ten kings. The Antichrist, Daniel particularly, he painstakingly shows us that the Antichrist is going to come out of that revived Roman Empire. He's going to be the little horn. That's one of the titles of the Antichrist. And he is going to make his political base out of this revived Roman Empire. He will be a political leader. He will be an economic leader. We will see that next week. In chapter 17, we will see that he's a religious leader. And then we will also see that he's a military leader as well. So here is this description once again that is told to us that tells us of this dragon. It speaks of this revived Roman Empire and the reason is is because we have this false trinity once again that we're seeing in chapters 12 and 13. The Antichrist is going to be directly influenced and empowered by Satan. So you have here what we've read, Israel bringing forth the Messiah. You have an angry dragon, the Antichrist coming out of the old Roman Empire, that extension. Let's continue reading verse 4. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And a dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. So we've made reference to Satan who at one time was called Lucifer. He, he was one that uh, rebelled against God. We know that Isaiah 14 tells us that. He wanted to be worshipped as God. He led this rebellion against God. Uh, we read in Isaiah chapter 14, for you have said, well, I'm going to uh, back up on that a couple verses, but how you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you have cut down of the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet you shall be brought down the Sheol to the lowest depths of 
the pit. We know that Ezekiel speaks of Lucifer as well, that he was a worship leader. Um, we read in that in chapter 28, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Interesting, you were in Eden, the garden of God, and it goes on and, and describes in verse 13, every precious stone was your covering, sardis, topaz, diamond, and it goes on, the workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day that you were created. So it shows us that he was a worship leader. Everything started with the problem with the worship leader, all right? Just kidding, Travis. So <laughs> I couldn't resist. So you were the anointed cherub who covers you. I establish you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. So that's what we know from, from Satan. He was cast out of heaven, and, and a host of angels sided with Lucifer in that rebellion. And they are fallen angels, which are called demons today, demonic spirits, which are present in our world today. Jesus would say to his disciples, to the 70 that went out, I saw Satan fall like lightning to the earth. So he is cast out of heaven. He comes to the earth. See, a lot of people, even some Christians, they think that Satan lives in hell, that he has a throne in hell. He doesn't live in hell. Eventually, he will be cast into the lake of fire and to Gehenna, to outer darkness. But he is the prince of the power of the air. He is called the God little g of this world. And he is one that is very present in our day today, in demonic spirits. Now, there are those who will tell you and I as Christians that we are crazy because we believe in Satan. Because we believe that there are demonic spirits that are out there, demons that are out there. And we know that the Bible very clearly tells us that there is a spiritual dimension of demons that are out there that we don't battle against flesh, you know, and, and um, you know, our, our spiritual weapons are not, you know, carnal, but we don't battle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places, Paul would say. that You need to put on the whole armor of God because the enemy throws those fiery darts at you and me. So we know that there's a spiritual dimension out there. There's angels that we see throughout the book of Revelation. There's this heavenly host of angels that we talked about, and there's the demonic host as well, and they are very, very real. So the dragon tried to stand against the woman ready to give birth, and we see that throughout the history of Israel. We see that because in Genesis chapter 3, I'll read it to you, and the first promise of Messiah, when Eve and Adam ate of the tree, God comes along and says, now death has come and sin has entered the world. And he begins to tell the consequences of a fallen world. And then he speaks to the serpent that deceived Eve, that is Satan. And, and he says, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And then he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." the very first promise of Messiah. And I'm so grateful that when all of a sudden, Adam, Eve, I told you that if you ate of that tree, that you shall surely die. 
And now sin and death has come into the world. Romans chapter 5, you remember that in our Roman study. But he didn't leave us without any hope. So Satan knowing that, that hey, there's going to be a coming one uh, of, that's going to be the hope of mankind, he doesn't want to get his head crushed. So that's why, listen, that's why that the Jewish people have been the most persecuted people in all of history. I mean, there's been groups that have been persecuted heavily. But you see that Satan has tried to keep the Messiah from coming because he doesn't want his head to be crushed. So what do you see? You see Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. He makes a decree to have all the male children drown in the Nile River. As you go through the Old Testament in 2 Kings chapter 11, the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, the, the, the king and, uh, up north in Israel, they were wicked. They had a daughter who married the, the king of Judah, and she takes over. She, she tried to destroy all the heirs of David till where there was only one left. And we know that Messiah would come through, you know, Abraham's descendants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And more specifically, David was told that the Messiah is going to come through you, David, through your line. And here she is, this woman trying to kill all the descendants of David to where there was one left, that was Joash, who was hidden six years in the temple. When you read about Esther and, and how Haman and, and tried to uh, kill all the Jews with this decree, trying to keep the Messiah from coming, destroying Judah and the people of Israel. So he has always tried to keep the Messiah from coming, but then Messiah comes, and the dragon, when, as we read here, when the child came forth, he would try to come against the child. And that's where we read about Herod the Great making that decree to kill all the male children two years and under. And Satan failed. But even now we see that he's after the Jewish people because we know in our Roman studies, remember in chapter 9, 10, and 11, that Paul, as he writes about his countrymen, and he's, he's very grieved because they haven't come to the righteousness of God that is through Jesus Christ, but trying to come through their own righteousness. But Paul, he writes in chapter 11, is God through with his people? He says, certainly not. And he talks about how the day's going to come when their eyes are going to be opened up and then all of Israel will be saved in that day. And the Old Testament speaks of that as well. They're going to recognize Jesus as their Messiah. The book of Zechariah, as they see the one who, and they will say as they mourn after him, where did you get those wounds? And Jesus will answer, I got those wounds in the house of my friends. When Jesus was weeping over Jerusalem, he would say to them that as he wept, that you will see me no more until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So a prophecy that is given, a prerequisite for Jesus coming back, is their eyes being opened up and recognizing that Jesus is their Messiah. So Satan has tried to keep the Jewish people, you know, from, from coming back into the land. He's tried to destroy the Jewish people. So you have men like Titus and Hitler and, and Nero. Hitler killed one out of every three Jews. Do you realize that? And out of the ashes of the Holocaust came the beauty. And we need to understand something. That what we see today, this anti-Semitic mindset uh, uh, that takes place against the Jews and the nation of Israel, it is demonic. 
And it makes no sense. And we know that it's going to increase to where Zechariah says that Jerusalem will become a cup of trembling to all the nations. And God has brought them back into the land. He says, this is your land. And he promised that once you go in, Amos tells us, the prophet of the Old Testament, they're not going to be plucked out again. And there's still one more week concerning your people, Daniel, and your holy city that God's going to focus on the nation of Israel. So they come back in 1948. God has preserved them through Six-Day War, the Yom Kippur War, the War of Annihilation, absolutely a, a miracle. But he's still trying to destroy the woman. And we need to understand that it's more than just a geopolitical problem that's happening in the Middle East. I'd read of somebody today that had text, um, you know, a, a guy that I know that does Bible study. He's from Israel. Just anointed guy that goes all over the world. God is using him. Text him and said, if, you know, the, the, if Israel was just nuked, it would solve all the problems in the world. That's what we're hearing more. Anti-Semitism is growing in Europe. There's no doubt about that. It is even growing in the United States and even in the church. I have seen that Christians, that what they put on social media about Israel and the Jews, and, and there's a spiritual dimension in this whole area of anti-Semitism, and it's going to grow. And it was Abraham that was told, you're going to be a great nation, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And that still stands today. And I believe that one of the reasons that our nation has been blessed is because, for the most part, we have stood by Israel. But the day that we forsake Israel and come against Israel, it's going to be bad news. So here is this anti-Semitic spiritual dimension that we need to understand as we see in the world today that the world more and more is going to isolate Israel. We see that very clearly, and we're going to see even more to a greater degree. So verse 5 again, she bore a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Her child was caught up to God in his throne. And then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that she should feed her there 1,260 days. So that's three and a half years. God is going to provide in the last three and a half years. Remember, this is the, the middle of the tribulation period. There's three and a half years till the second coming of Jesus Christ. And Jesus said that that when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of Daniel the prophet, that is when the Antichrist goes into the temple of God to be worshipped as God, to exalt himself as God, then he will tell the world and command the world to worship him. Because what does Satan always wanted? He wanted to be worshipped as God. So the Antichrist is going to make that demand. And Jesus said, when you see that, the abomination of desolation, you need to flee. Those of you in Judea, flee to the mountains. You know, if you're in the field, get, get out. If you're on the rooftop, don't go down, take anything out of the house. You need to just go. And let him who's in the field not go back to get his clothes. Woe to those who are pregnant and nursing babies in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter on the Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time or ever will be. Jesus said, flee. And he's talking specifically to Israel. He says, pray that there's, it's not on the Sabbath. 
because transportation shuts down on the Sabbath. The Antichrist will go in the temple. He will demand to be worshipped. And then for three and a half years, as they're going to have to flee, he's going to turn against Israel. And he's going to turn, as we're going to see next week, against the tribulation saints. So all of this happens according to Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. What happens here is in Revelation chapter 12, in the middle of the tribulation period. Now, as they flee, many, as they flew to the wilderness, many believe that this is going to be a place, the rock city Petra that's in Jordan, that is the place that they're going to flee. And we get a hint of that in, in Isaiah chapter 16. Again, I'll read it to you. That Isaiah prophesying says, Send the lamb to the ruler of the land from Shelah, that is the rock, to the wilderness. And he goes on and he says, That let my outcast dwell with you, O Moab, be a shelter to them from the face of the spoiler. So Moab... The ancient place of Moab is where the rock city of Petra is today. Be a shelter for them. Let my outcast dwell with you, O Moab. Shelter them from the face of the spoiler, a reference to the Antichrist. So what's going to happen is they're going to have to flee to the rock city of Petra in Jordan. Now, the rock city of Petra, many of you know, we got a picture of it upstairs in the hallway uh, by the youth room, it was a city, an ancient city, built by the uh, Nabataeans uh, centuries ago, millenniums ago. Uh, and, and they built this city out of, of rock, the rock city of Petra. And you can go there today, and you, it's uh, fascinating. And it is the size of Manhattan. So they're going to flee to the rock city of Petra, what is believed to the wilderness. What is interesting is that Jordan, because relationships with Israel and Jordan have been better, you know what they did? They built a four-lane highway from the border of Israel all the way to the rock city of Petra. And there are literally thousands of Israelis that go to the rock city of Petra. They're familiar with that place. So they're going to flee to the rock city of Petra. There's only one entrance into that, that rock city. It's a narrow canyon. I've been there before. And, and as we continue to read here about that, uh, verse 7, And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and, the, and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was there a place found for them in heaven any longer. Now you might be thinking, wait. I thought this already happened. I thought Satan was cast out of heaven, that Jesus said he, he saw Satan fall like lightning to the earth. He was. But we know that Satan has had access to heaven, to, to the throne of God. I don't fully understand it, but the Bible declares it. How do we know that? The book of Job, chapter 1, remember? That the sons of, 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 of men were coming, presenting themselves before uh, the Lord and their Satan. And the Lord said, where have you been, Satan? He said, oh, to and fro across the whole earth. Have you considered my servant Job? Oh, yeah, I've considered him. So we see this, this heavenly scene that's taken place there. We remember that Jesus, right before he was arrested in the garden, he turned to Peter and he said, Peter, Satan's been asking for you. <coughs> but I've prayed for you. Can you imagine if Jesus turned to you and said, oh, by the way, Satan's been asking for you personally. He wants to shift you like wheat. In other words, he wants to beat you up and he wants to do you in. 
So we see that, that Satan, that he has had this access to heaven. And we know that he's going to be cast out at this time, halfway in the tribulation period. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1 says that at that time, Michael will stand up and the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. So this seems to take place where he's cast out of heaven not to have access to heaven anymore. And he's going to be cast out. And there's this war between Michael and Satan. As you go through the scriptures, it seems like that Michael is always mixing it up with Satan or some demonic force. In the book of Jude, we talked about, um, I think last week, uh, that it tells us that Satan and, and Michael contended over the body of Moses. In Daniel chapter 10, Daniel prophesying 21 days, uh, prayers, uh, Daniel, this angel comes and says, you know, your prayers were heard from the first day, but the prince of Persia withstood me, and Michael had to come and help me. You know, Jesus, when he said, Peter in the garden, when it came to arrest Jesus, and he pulled out a sword, he said, Peter, put it away. I'll take on the cup of suffering and death. Don't you know I can call down 12 legions of angels? And I think that Michael's there with his hand on his sheath saying, come on, just say the word, and I'm ready to go. Don't think that, that Satan is really any match for Michael, that there's this war going on. And, and, and listen, we, we don't have time to go into it tonight, but, you know, when did Satan fall, all of this? And, and when did it happen? And, and Michael here, the time's going to come when the Lord's going to say, okay, Michael, go get him. And he's going to be cast to the earth. And, and he's going to have no more access to heaven. So the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of all called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. And then we read, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accuses them before God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame you know, him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. So all of a sudden here he's cast out. He is angry. He is very angry because he knows his time is short as we're going to read. But I want to encourage you here tonight because it tells us that he's the one that accuses us day and night. We get a picture of that in Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3, there's Satan standing next to Joshua the high priest, and he's accusing Joshua. And the Lord rebuke you as the Lord says, rebuke you, Satan. Take those filthy rags off of Joshua. Put them on clean rags. It speaks of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But Satan, you see, not only did he say to Job, you know, concerning Job, as the Lord said, have you considered my servant, Job? And he said, yes. And that word consider is a military term. Yes, I've studied Job. I've studied how I can get a foothold in his life. Peter, he's been asking for you. He wants to beat you up. And he also accuses you. And he asks for you. And you see, that is a real thing that, again, we can't fully understand. 
But he accuses, you know, us day and night before the throne of God, accusing us. Did you see what Jeff did? He's such a loser. He, you know, he accuses us. And that's why John in his epistle says that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We have a defense attorney that is there to say, Satan, the Lord rebuke you. Because we overcome him by the blood of the Lamb. He is forgiven and he belongs to me. And the word of testimony. And the word of testimony is this, that I love him and he belongs to me. And we have the word of testimony when Satan accuses us because he will accuse us day and night. He will come to try to condemn you as much as he can and understand there's a difference between the condemnation of the enemy and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. The condemnation of the enemy is he accuses you. God doesn't love you. You're worthless. You're a spiritual waste. You're no good. And we can overcome him by the word of truth, the word of testimony that I belong to Jesus. He loves me and his promises are true for me. And maybe you have heard the voice of that condemnation of the enemy who comes against you, whispering to you, God doesn't love you. Don't believe it. Believe what the word of God has to say to you. Now, conviction that comes from the Holy Spirit is to draw you to God. The condemnation of the enemy is to push you away from God. Big difference. So he accuses you and me day and night, and we can overcome him, knowing that we are washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ, and we have an advocate, a defense attorney, who intercedes for us, who is our advocate, who declares us righteous because we've come to him, been forgiven, and we have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So as we continue here, he accuses us, and, and we go through this, and, and then as we continue, as we got to finish, therefore rejoice, O heavens, verse 12, who dwell in them, woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows his time is short. Satan's power is real and terrifying, and he knows that his time is short, and so he's going to come, and all of a sudden there's going to be great tribulation that is going to take place uh, as... Uh, we uh, have um, Satan that is cast out. And now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, verse 13, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her time and times and a half time, that's three and a half years, from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood of the dragon and spewed out of his mouth. And verse 17, the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Listen, I need to finish up, but this is what's going to happen. They're going to flee to the rock city of Petra. God's going to provide for them. The Antichrist and his forces are going to go after them. And it tells us here that all of a sudden this flood comes. Uh, the woman gave two wings of a great eagle. I think that it's a reference. Uh, eagle wings are an emblem of the Exodus deliverance and 
Exodus chapter 19, verse 4. Again, there are some people that say, oh, this speaks of America, you know, the eagle and this mighty airlift. I think that's stretching what the scripture says. It's just speaking of this Exodus. They're going to flee to the rock city of Petra. He's going to come after them. And all of a sudden, there's going to be this, this flood. The earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. What does that mean? We don't know for sure. Is the earth going to open up and swallow up those forces? Could be. Uh, is there other means that are going to happen, but God's going to protect them and nourish them for three and a half years? Now, you might read on the Internet. You know how everything's true on the Internet. Um, you might read that there are Christian businessmen that have supplied Petra with supplies and food and all that. Not true. I've been there. The Bedouins are there. They, they're all over Petra, and they come up, and because they're poor, they're always asking for money, and they, they don't have much. So if there was any supplies there, they would have been long gone. They, they would have been taken away. One of the things that perhaps how God might provide for them, this is just a thought. Don't make doctrine out of this. Is it, could it be the same way he did when they were in the wilderness, dropping manna? For three and a half years, there are going to be many that are going to be persecuted by the Antichrist. The book of Zechariah tells us about that. We know that Isaiah speaks of how the Lord's going to protect them in Isaiah 59, verse 19. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him, and they will flee. Another thought here, very quickly. Some have suggested perhaps this is when Ezekiel 38 and 39 is going to happen. I don't think it's a reference to that at all. I think one of the reasons, and just this is just a thought, that one of the reasons that Ezekiel 38, that major war, which may be the next war in the Middle East, there are stage-setting events already taking place, so that war could happen. We see the alliances of Russia and Iran and Turkey and the other Islamic nations already there in Syria as they come to the mountains to the north of Israel in this massive invasion. God will protect Israel at that time. Some have said that maybe this is a reference to Ezekiel 38 and 39. I don't think it is. I think it's a direct reference to the Antichrist that is going to go after the Jews. But one of the things that we read in Ezekiel 39 that it's going to take seven years to to burn the weapons that were used, that Israel's going to burn those weapons. So it speaks of, I believe, weapons of mass destructions. And one of the things, when they cleaned up Rocky Flats here and the nuclear weapons that were there, you know how they did it? They burned them. It took seven years. So I think that Ezekiel 38 could happen before the tribulation period. Because if it happens in the beginning of the tribulation period, they're not going to be able to burn those weapons because the Antichrist is coming after them. So interesting implications that is happening here. The Antichrist is also going to go after the tribulation saints that we're going to read about next week. But we're going to see that it's going to be very difficult times. Listen. When you minister to others, there are those who say, oh, you Christians really believe that is going to happen? Have you ever had somebody say to you, I'll see if the rapture happens and, you know, and if the tribulation comes along, then I'll give my life to Christ. You know, the Antichrist is going to be chopping heads off. And I always tell people, listen, use your head, don't lose your head. 
Give your life to Christ now because if you can't give it during this day of grace, how are you going to be able to give it during that very difficult time? Whether they will see the tribulation period or not. This is real stuff. And I want us to be realizing once again that Satan is real, who's the accuser of the brethren, and he will ask for you, and he will ask for your children, and he will ask for this church because he knows that his time is short. Sue and I, more than ever, pray for our kids because we know that our kids are a priority for Satan to come against them. And your kids are a priority to him as well. And he will ask for them. We cannot, in the world in which we're living in, listen, mom and dads and grandparents, say, I don't have time to pray for my kids. Or to say, I don't have time to pray for my marriage. Or I don't have time to pray for my church, for the pastor. Because he is asking for us. And as we are involved in a spiritual battle, we don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. But I'll tell you what, he's going to look for any way. He's going to consider you. And he's going to consider me of any foothold that he can get into our lives. Because he hates you and your kids and your family. And he hates this church and it is real and we need to be praying and we have victory because of the blood of the lamb and the word of testimony but we cannot let our guards down and we need to put on the whole armor of God and to know that he doesn't fight fair and you can't begin every day without your armor of God on and then he's throwing the fiery darts at you and he's coming against you to say okay Mr. Devil can we stop because I forgot to put on my whole armor of God because he's looking to rip your head off. And he's a roaring lion, seeking whom he might devour. And it is real. Be praying for your kids, for your grandkids, for those who are linked to you in your life that you love, and pray for this church, and pray for the brethren. Because his time is short. And we have victory in Christ, but we've got to be on guard. We've got to be sober and alert, be vigilant, because... Your adversary, the devil, is like a roaring lion seeking whom he might devour. He's going to ask for us. Be in prayer. Be vigilant. And know that we have victory. And lift your kids, your grandkids, your spouse, this church up in prayer. And know that it is the vehicle in which God works. There's power in prayer. And let's be about the king's business. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for these reminders. And, and, Lord, this is a heavy chapter. But it tells us how Satan hates us, and he hates the believers. And he accuses us day and night. So, Lord, we want to be ones that are sober and vigilant. We want to be... ones that continue in the truth of God's word and growing in your love, that we don't want to become complacent. Listen to us. We got a few minutes here, and I know we're running just a little bit late, and we're going to need to go get our kids. But maybe you're in a place where you've been complacent 
towards your kids or your own spiritual life, in your marriage. Because the cares of life weigh you down or distractions or things can become a priority. And Lord, forgive us when we get pulled away in that way and we get complacent and we take for granted and we just think, they'll be fine. I hope they're okay. We know that we need to be in prayer because there's a spiritual battle going on out there for the souls of our kids, the soul of this church. Lord, we're secure in you, in our salvation, but the enemy will, is a destroyer that will try to destroy families and our effectiveness and witness. Lord, in what you desire to do through our lives, because we're not watching and we're not paying attention. And he's like a roaring lion waiting to pounce. And we know that a lion pounces on the weak, the one who's not watching. So, Lord, may we be vigilant and watching. If anything tonight, Lord, that we be committed to giving our kids to you in prayer, the sacrifice of prayer, even as Job sacrificed a bull for each one of his kids. And if he can sacrifice a bull, which isn't easy, we can spend time in sacrifice of prayer every day, praying for our kids, praying with them, with their families, for this church, Lord. Father, I thank you that we have victory. And we overcome the accuser of the brethren by the blood of the Lamb and the word of testimony, your promises. And may we be wise in the day in which we're in and not play around and play games because Satan doesn't play fair. So Lord, help us to be sober and vigilant and alert and watching. I do want to pray, if you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus, that he came and died for you, that you might have forgiveness and salvation, the right relationship with the Father. He went to the cross for you to die for your sins because Adam sinned in the garden. Now death and sin has come to all of us and the wages of sin is death. But Jesus came to give you life. Will you come to him if you... Don't play games with your salvation. If you've never made a commitment to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, his invitation right now is to come. And you can pray right where you are. That Jesus, I come and I ask that you would be my personal Lord and Savior. Forgive me, I'm a sinner. I believe you died for me. You rose again and you're alive. Sit upon the throne of my life. Thank you for saving me and you are Lord. And I thank you for bringing me here tonight. And I thank you for forgiving me and bringing me into the family of God in this new beginning. In Jesus' name. And listen, if you prayed that prayer, there's a prayer team that's going to be up here in just a minute as we close. Will you tell them the decision you made? Or if you're listening on live stream or on the radio later, will you give us a call? Tell us that you made that decision. But for all of us, may we leave here just being reminded of these very important truths that come from your word. Bless everyone here now, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you please stand?